And welcome, everybody, to another episode of Smart Money Circle. I'm your host, Adam Sarhan. With me today is a very special guest. It's Julie Beal, CFA, Portfolio Manager, and Senior Research Analyst at Kane, Anderson, and Rudnick, uh, with approximately $32 billion in assets under management. Julie, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. So, Julie, I always like to begin. Can you uh, tell us how you got involved in this business? I started. Uh, I started right out of undergrad. I worked. I actually worked in the bond rating department as a temp at Moody's. So I was basically, and I graduated in uh, 2004. So I was actually witnessing the financial crisis happening, uh, and not even really knowing it. Um, and then I joined Merrill Lynch uh, about six or seven months later as a sell side analyst, and we covered kind of industrial stocks. We did home builders, pollution control, and then we moved to retail. And after that, I decided I wanted to come back to Los Angeles and come back to business school and graduated in 2009, which was amazing. I recommend it for everyone. (laughs) And and then uh, worked my way back into finance and have been here at uh, Keen Anderson Rudnick for about almost seven years. Nice. So let's talk about business school for a second. You recommend it to everybody. Is it for the education, for the network, for broadening your horizon? Does it help with work or, or all the above? Or can you explain a little bit why you recommend it to everybody? I, I think for some, it's it's a, an opportunity to really meet a much broader swath of people, a much different group of people with different backgrounds. I think at that point in my career, I wasn't sure if I wanted to stay as some kind of equity research analyst. I was interested in maybe I wanted to do something more entrepreneurial. Maybe I wanted to work in real estate and my sense is in business school is that you're you're not so much paying for the guy that's up front teaching you. You're really paying for the people you sit next to. The connections that you make in business school are extremely valuable. I owe my job here at Kane Anderson Rudnick to one of my uh, classmates um, who let me know that there was a position opening. Gotcha. And you know we've since be, we're really close working with each other. So you know I, I think. That to me is the most value. I think for a lot of people who are looking at a career change and want a little bit of a reset, it's a great opportunity to see what's out there and, and develop some stronger skill sets. I fully agree. I mean, for the networking part is huge. I started my business in my dorm room in grad school way back when. And oh, wow. yeah, it's been fantastic since. But um, I, I, I love hearing people that recommend it because most people, even just recently the news, Elon Musk came out and said, you know, people don't learn in college and yet he requires everyone that works for him to have a bachelor's degree. So I don't know if it's just gathering headlines or what happens, but a lot of these guys come out there and say, it doesn't matter, but you know, look what they do. It's different than what they say. So I always like hearing yeah. people that say school is good. That's a big, uh, it's a, it's a good thing. Okay. That's very good. So tell us a little about your investment strategy. How do you guys play the game? So we are a uh, long-term quality investors. We run large uh, portfolios with concentrated positions. So, most of our portfolios don't have more than 30 stocks in them. Some of them have as few as seven or eight stocks. Um, and we do that because we want to have high conviction. We want to know our names extremely well so that we can make informed decisions, especially when we have the kind of turbulence we've had recently. Um, it really pays to know your names inside out so that when you get news, you can react in a way that, that makes sense and that's thoughtful. It's, you know, you're not just going to be reactionary. You're going to be able to see the, the long-term vision. I love it. So our average hold period is something like five years, but I mean, we've owned names for 15 years. The firm has existed since 1984. 
Um, and I think that when we work with management teams, they see that track record and they appreciate that we're long-term holders. We see, you know, market corrections like we've seen recently as more of an opportunity than something to be really worried about. And, you know, I think for us, we really define quality as being structural. So it's not good enough for me that a, a market overall is in a secular uptick. I want the absolute best company that's the best positioned and the best protected uh, in, in a in an overall economic market. Because for us, I think we have we try to have a little bit of humility about saying we don't know exactly what the macro looks like. We're not forecasting from a tops down perspective. We don't have a big broad thesis of you know digitization or anything like that. We look at these companies one by one and make a decision of whether or not we view them as being the best position in the markets that they serve. So it's a little bit of humility to say we don't know what the overall world looks like in, in 10 years, but I know that this company, XYZ, is really well positioned to take share or to protect its position and to generate really strong returns. I love that. You know, humility is a big piece of my equation as well. Julie, I have a question for you. What specific metrics do you look at? to help determine whether or not a stock is is the best in its class, as you, as you would say? You know, I, for us, we're, we view ourselves as business analysts first. So the for us, you know, it's always attractive when you have a company that's very high levels of profitability, you know, low capital needs, all the things that we all look for. But I think for us, it's much more important that we understand the qualitative protections of why it's able to earn you know, better margins than its peers. Um, I think when you really understand that, you're better protected to understand when there's turbulence in the financial statements because that happens. You know, we don't, you know, we don't throw our hands up in the air if a company misses if we feel like the competitive protections are still there. So I, I, I try not to be very dogmatic and hung up on, you know, I'm a growth investor, for example, but I don't have a minimum growth threshold because what I'm more concerned about is the sustainability of the growth. So that makes yeah, that makes perfect sense. I mean, this is an educational show. We're trying to learn. So, what specifically would you, from a qualitative standpoint, would you, you look at to say, hey, this company's protected? So you know, it, it depends. It depends by industry. So you know, we we try to identify business models where we feel like these kinds of attributes really protect the business. So I work in software, and in software. There are a lot of places where you see high switching costs, right? So if a software has been put into, uh, let's say it's kind of the back office accounting, okay, you don't switch that out pretty often, you, not even for a you know 10% price decline. So that's something that's kind of durable that I know, at least within the core customer base that this company has, that structurally, in you know, they're not likely to switch out to a newer low-priced competitor. So that's kind of an example of a, a, a competitive protection that we look at. Yeah. There are network effects that we see in Facebook, right? We haven't had a real social media company be created, not a viable one, you know, in the last decade. There's no venture funding for it. And that's just because the network effect in Facebook, especially on the media side, the media, you know, being able to sell advertising is so strong. It just doesn't make sense to try to build something there. Right. So that's what we look for a certain business models that have shown to be very durable over time. I love it. That's really, really good. So um, the investment strategy, we spoke before, you said you don't care necessarily what's happening next quarter. It's more of a long-term outlook and you read the 10Ks. I, that caught my attention. 
what specifically in 10Ks do you look at? And for just the audience as a recap, 10Ks are just public companies that are required to report things to the SEC. It's all public. So um, most people, most investors don't take the time to read the 10Ks, but I find the ones that do tend to be smarter than the average person. So you having, re- you know, going through these 10Ks, what are some tidbits or some, you know, nuggets of wisdom you can say to look for, to look out for when, when investors go through and read 10Ks? You know, I think I think I'm amazed how few investors read uh, the filings, and you can't get everything out of the filing, but you can really get quite quite far, and it's free. Um, so we read the filing from start to finish, and I read the filing from start to finish as a senior analyst and as a portfolio manager too. Um, so that's kind of something unique in our team is that uh, both of the people who are working on an idea do all the same work, and the the filing is really the bedrock. Um, when we put together our questions list, it's how manager, it's how kind of a CFO or a CEO knows that we've actually done the hard work of going through the filings. So the most important sections that you know I find I generate the most questions from are you know the initial business description, right? Because that's where I'm trying to figure out what kind of a business model is this. Do these guys have a cost advantage, and if so, is there a way to compete that away over time? That sort of thing. And then I look very carefully at the risk section. And then the notes at the end of the filing, and this is where things um, can get kind of buried away. I remember when I was covering retail, there were kind of, you weren't really aware, but a lot of income was being generated on the way that they accounted for gift cards, right? Right. Gift cards is not really fundamental to the business, right, to the health of the business, but they were generating a whole bunch of income from it. And you wouldn't have really known that unless you'd gone through all of the key points of, of the filings, but especially towards the back. I love it. That's really, really good. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I'm, it blows my mind how few people pay attention to something that's so obvious when you know what to look for. Yeah, I mean, it's free. I, yeah. I get it. It's boring, I, but it's uh, but it's free. That's all it is. Um, it's and it's boring a great topic, resource. Right? It's the boring. People want entertainment. It's not entertaining, so they don't do it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I find the only place that the filing is weak is in the competitive section. The competitive section is usually very boilerplate, and it's usually like Agreed. we have lots of competitors. Most of them have better funding than we do and we're at risk in that way. So for competitors, it's I, th- I find I get better information talking to uh, customers right. of the company and sometimes the sell side can give you a, a, a good overview of, of what's out there. Yeah, I agree 100%. So next question for you, Julie, is how do you handle risk and what mistakes do you see people make with respect to risk management? So, you know, I think a, a lot of people will talk to you about risk as you know, they'll talk about it as as volatility and, you know, all these kind of fancy statistical measures. And the way we think about risk here at my firm is the, the permanent loss of capital, right? That's clear. That's concrete. We all understand how painful it is to lose money. So the way that we don't have a lot of sophisticated risk analytics that we run, what we try to do is minimize business risk at the individual company level. So we don't like companies that have a lot of leverage. Leverage can really cause companies to have to make difficult decisions that are not necessarily in their long-term best interests. Um, again, we try to find companies that have healthy earnings, healthy cash flow, so that if they come under difficult times, they're going to be able to weather that. We like companies that have more variable costs than fixed costs for the same kind of reason. If there's any kind of market correction in their individual markets, that they're well protected. You know, we like Market. We like businesses that are not subject to, you know, 
a lot of commodity risk, that sort of thing. So that's, I think, about protecting my investors and my investments at the company level. I don't think, you know, you can do a lot of analytics, but I don't think that really tells you what the risk is if there is, you know, a sudden deceleration in global growth or, you know, a, a virus outbreak. I don't feel like there's any kind of sophisticated modeling that's out there right now that would really help us out with our portfolios in terms of this correction that we've most recently seen. But what I will tell you is that our portfolios on a relative basis are performing super well in the last two weeks, and that's because we have high-quality businesses that most portfolio managers don't really want to sell. Right. So the, basically, you're looking as investing in the business like Warren Buffett and not so much in the stock. So the stock is exactly. up or down. It's not so much, it's not going to scare you out. Whereas as long as the business fundamentals are there and the, the case is still there, you're still in it. Yeah, absolutely. It requires discipline in terms of uh, making sure that you're not getting your thesis kind of drifting off where things change. Maybe they make an acquisition. You want to, you have to be disciplined in terms of making sure that the reason why you own the stock today and you would buy it again today at this price as it isn't kind of drifting off over time. Right. That's a really good point, the style drift, right? So mm-hmm. next question for you. You have a concentrated portfolio. I want to talk a second about diversification, diversification, if you're familiar with Peter Lynch's term. Um, I am, yeah. yeah. Being too diversified for those that aren't. And then also how to handle risk in a, in a diverse, in a concentrated, excuse me, portfolio. So if you don't, I'm assuming you don't use technicals to make entries or exits. It's more fundamental base. Is that the correct? That's assumption? right. Okay. Yep. So the next question is, if you don't use technicals to sell, what, and you only have a, you know, a concentrated portfolio, what do you do in the event that the market falls and you know, the market's the stocks in your portfolio are just moving the wrong way? Is it just, okay, let's weather the storm and wait? Or is it, hey, let's sell because of X? In other words, are there any sell criteria that you could share with the audience that um, would help? remove some of that risk of having a concentrated portfolio in a down, downward sloping market? Well, I, I will tell you that in, if you have a concentrated portfolio of quality stocks, as we do at this firm, you tend to outperform your benchmarks in a down market. I mean, I think every single strategy that we have here, that be it you know a core strategy, a large cap growth strategy, you know, small value strategy, they have all outperformed in the last two weeks with this downdraft because they are a concentrated group of high-quality businesses. And that is, I think, how you manage your strategy um, such that you can outperform and, and, you know, sit chilly when there's a lot of volatility around you. What what I think is kind of important to think about when it comes to selling is, I, I you know, I think selling is much harder than buying personally. Um, and for us, 90% of the times when we're selling, truly selling the name all the way out of a portfolio it's, it's a result of something has changed in the fundamentals. Um, we were wrong. That happens. Absolutely. And I, you know, I think it's important to talk about the number of times that, that you're going to be wrong in this business. It's really humbling and you need to keep sight of that. And, you know, sometimes digging in your heels is really not the right idea. Uh, you know, sometimes they make an acquisition and it, they're moving the business in a direction you don't like, exactly like Peter Lynch talked about in diversification. And that's a great reason to sell. That's almost always the one of the better, easier reasons to sell. Um, You know, and sometimes, you know, the thesis just isn't quite panning out or the competitive protection just isn't as strong. It's getting eroded away over time. Uh, We saw that a lot with the retailers. 
So, you know, I think it, it, for us, it's really the vast majority of the time that's what we do. And then, you know, sometimes valuation really just gets prohibitive. So we've, we've done a great job in this upcycle of letting our winners run. But there are definitely times where you feel like, I want to take some of the money off the table if something has really run far and far faster than you think and that the, the fundamentals ahead look good, but maybe not quite this good. Right. And that's also important. So do you, I guess the way, the way you would handle risk and that whole situation, the whole question comes down to just make sure you're invested in the top tier best businesses out there. And they will be able to weather the storm. Yes. Understood. Yes. So, and, and there are little things you can do in terms of being, you know, like thinking a lot about variable versus fixed costs. You know, how flexible is this business that it can scale itself back and protect itself um, when the when the conditions get really challenging? You know, like what Delta is doing today with, you know, what you know, putting flights aside and that sort of thing. It's much harder for them to do that because all that capital committed is expensive. You know, right. those planes on the ground are expensive. Yeah. No so we think a lot about that. So um, that's a really good, good way to view it. Julie, what are some timeless lessons you've learned along the way that you'd like to share with the audience? Oh, great question. Um, you know, I think for when I think about how I allocate my time, you know, as a sell side analyst, I would build these really beautiful, robust models, and I would get the EPS absolutely spot on, perfect, and it was very mentally satisfying because you know I'm a dork, like that's that's fun. Um, but in my current capacity, I really spend very little time building out, you know, these big hypersensitive models, and I just find that every minute I invest learning about the business, learning about the competitive landscape. It, it, it returns three, four, five, ten times more than a minute spent doing valuation or modeling. I need to understand how the business is going to generate the returns over time, but I do not need to have them at quite the level of specificity that is out there in so many models today. You know, you listen on these earnings calls and you have sell-side analysts who have this precious amount of time with a CFO and their question is about the tax rate in terms of 50 basis points this way or that. Right. I mean, to me, that's a waste, right? You didn't learn anything about the business. Right. You're just trying to get your model, you know, all spotted up and perfect. And I just don't think that long term that serves you as an investor. You may be able to make money on the quarters, but it's much harder to kind of maintain that over time because we can all do models. There's not a lot of genius to, to building these really robust models. So I find that sometimes people are intimidated because they think they need to have this expertise in, in building a model. But, you know, when I think about valuation and longer term projections for my company, it's very simple. You know, it literally could fit in the palm of my hand because quite honestly, I don't know, and honestly, even management doesn't know. Most businesses just do not have the level of clarity on their five-year outlook that we wish they did. It's, they just don't have it. There's just too many variables. Right. That's a very, very good point. They, don't, they themselves don't know. They themselves don't know. I, I used to work for, uh, when I covered airlines, I worked for some uh, an analyst who had been an airline operator. And he's like, look, Julie, when you're on the phone with management and you're pushing them to get an understanding of what a forecast looks like, remember, they're not, not telling you because they don't want to tell you. They're not telling you because they don't know. Yeah, it's so true. Nobody knows what will happen tomorrow, let alone what will happen exactly. in a year or two years exactly. or, or coronavirus or LMNLP, whatever happens, there's disruptions all the time or surprises, both up and down. Exactly. So, okay, that's fantastic. What are some 
timeless mistakes you see people make in this business and how do you avoid them? You know, I, I think it's the, just the, the classic, we, you know, the classic psychology of selling your winners too soon and being dug in on your losers. You know, I think a lot of times we want to, you know, we are wrong on a name. It's, you know, it's embarrassing. There's ego involved in, in being completely dead wrong on a name. And we just want to, we just want to hold on to it for a slightly better price. We just want, you know, just we just want to, yeah, just get back to even recover a little bit right? Uh, because it's just so painful psychologically when that happens. But quite honestly, I, I think a lot and, you know, my CFO has really encouraged me to think a lot about the opportunity cost of that capital. You know, for us, we don't hold big cash positions ever. We, we want to be fully invested in the market. And so, yes, it's that position has lost money for sure. And that is painful. But you could reallocate that capital to three or four other names that you do have conviction on and that you think are better positioned. And it's an overall upgrade for the portfolio. And every day that you wait, there's there's nothing to stop that stock from going down further. So, you know, I think having a lot of discipline about selling the second you realize that you're wrong and that the fundamentals are, it's not what you thought it was, that is just so critical. And it's the same on the flip side. You know, we, we often think, you know, we want to be able to crystallize that win, that, that fantastic run up in a stock. But, you know, oftentimes when things are working in a name, you can allow it to compound over time and generate a lot of return. There are going to be moments where the valuation is a little bit ahead of the business. But if you look over the very long term, if the fundamentals are still excellent, there's no reason to not hold on. You can trim a little. We have found that the trimming doesn't usually work. Um, but if you know, if you just want to be able to kind of limit your risk a little, you can trim. But I think selling on valuation is is just not not a great way to go. So what would be a good way to go? If you if how do you know? In other words, my question is, how do you know when you're wrong? Oh, how do you know when you're wrong? Yeah, I, I think when you say, to, you know, it's really important, even when you're kind of investing privately for yourself, that every investment you make, that you write down what your thesis is that's going to happen. You say, you know, I think this company has 60% market share and that it's going to continue to hold that market share um, because it just has a much better product. And then over time, you start to see that competition is starting to erode that market share. Then, And that was your thesis. For, right. for why you wanted to, to be in this business, that it was competitively protected, and yet the market share is declining, that's a pretty good reason usually to sell. Understood. So, yeah, yeah, I think it's just having the discipline to write out your thesis and then check it when you when things are going sideways. So it's not to do nothing to do with the stock price. It's more to do with the underlying business itself and whether the thesis is still valid or not. Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, you know, there are definitely times where we will dig in on something uh, because we think the market has completely misunderstood something, but there, you know, I don't. I, I feel like there is a lot of disdain for for the wisdom of the crowds, and you know, you got to do always the opposite. But but sometimes the market is is just plain right, and you need to pay attention to that. You cannot just put your head in the sand and be like everyone on Wall Street is totally wrong, and they have been for the last nine months. Sometimes you have to be like, you know what? I think they're right. The competitive position is is been impaired, and I. You know, I need to kind of cut my losses and move on. So it wouldn't be so much a X percent below your entry point. It'll be more along the lines of a personal, I guess, is it a feeling that you would use, Julie, to say, hey, listen, I'm wrong, move on? Or is it along the lines of enough of the, the data points of why I bought it are now null, or null and void, this doesn't work anymore? 
Yeah, it's much more about the evidence that you see, right? So, for example, we had a company that sold software, and a large percent of their software business was sold to oil and gas companies. Right. And so you would imagine that sometimes when oil and gas markets correct, as they have right now, people panic. Can get out of the stock. Right. Okay. The stock, the contracts are on five and six year terms, right? Right. So for us, we felt like, okay, that's a dislocation in pricing. I'm not going to sell that because I don't really think there's a lot of risk that the business is going to erode. Right. Um, it may take a small hit, but I don't think it's going to collapse the way in line with the price. We would actually view that as an opportunity to add. But in cases where up its market share as as a key point of you know its strength, key evidence of its strength, and all you're hearing about is the level of competition changing, and suddenly they're having to take price because they can't maintain that competitive position. Okay, then you know the thesis has changed. That's a fundamental change. So that's interesting. You wouldn't be concerned about the software companies selling to oil companies, even though going forward the next three to five years, that the renewals will be lower because there's the entire oil and gas industry or the energy sectors under pressure. That wouldn't concern you so much. Part of it, it depends on, on, in this specific instance, the company is mission critical software. So it's not like wildcatting software. It's software that's used to run the business. So that coupled with the long contract, be a little less usage, but they're not going to whole hog rip the software out for someone that's cheaper. They're just going to have fewer people running it than they would like. Understood. That goes back to your earlier point about the uh, making sure that the companies themselves have a good competitive advantage and it's not easy to switch, like you said, the software to switch it from the accounting software, the example you gave earlier. That would yeah, be exactly. Example. Got it. Okay. So um, what's the best piece of advice you'd like to share with the audience on or off of Wall Street? Oh, um, you know, I think the best piece of advice I've ever had is to be conscious of the role that luck plays in investing. There are so many times that you invest in a stock for XYZ reason and the stock goes up, but for completely different reasons than you would have expected. And I think it's important to, when you come into this job, to have humility in terms of how you approach it, because there are going to be so many times where you're wrong. And if you just have your ego so tied into this, you're never going to be able to kind of last in it. You have to be able to recognize the times that you got lucky, be grateful for them and put your head down and continue to work on the, on the names that, that make sense for you. I love it. It's really, really good advice. And then one more question for you, Julie. So you manage at your firm, a lot of money, 32 billion. What, and you've had many roles over your career so far. What differences, if any, are there with managing small pools of capital, several million to larger ones, several billion? What Can you speak to that a little bit? So I, I would say since I've been at the firm, we went from managing, when I joined the firm, we were just, on, I think we were at six or seven billion. Um, and some of the strategies that we have were very small. Um, my strategy right now is very small because we just started it. Um, so I'm kind of getting the feel for, for both of those. What's wonderful about running um, a small strategy is it's very easy to get in and out of things. Right. Um, so you can own smaller market cap positions. I think we see that as more of a challenge in, the, in some of our larger, more well-funded strategies, especially those that are kind of looking at uh, small cap land. So we end up kind of very quickly becoming very large holders of some of these names. And in some ways, that's fantastic because 
Um, we really kind of partner with manage, you know, the management teams. There were very, it's very easy for us to get them on the phone. Um, we don't have to rely on broker dealers, which is awesome. Um, and we just have a good rapport with them. I think we can get really good candid conversations with them, which, which help us make good decisions. Um, but I do like being a, a smaller manager right now just because I have so I can get in and out of things so quickly. We're not afraid of things that aren't very liquid. If, if something takes, you know, 30, 60 days to trade in and out of, that's okay with us. I mean, we hold half of these things for, you know, five years. So, right. you know, a couple of days isn't going to make a huge difference. And our trading desk has gotten so much more sophisticated now in terms of being able to find, you know, large blocks um, without having major impacts to the tape. So, you know, I think our our sophistication in terms of how we trade in and out of these stocks has changed pretty dramatically. Um, but yeah, I like, I, it's a lot more fun to be a little guy and just kind of be able to, to float in and out of things much more, much more easily. Yeah, I know. I mean, I have several clients in a very large multi-billion dollar area in your world. And it, it's that's it, liquidity. It's getting in and getting out. That's the hardest part of the, the equation. It's not so much managing the portfolio differently. It's just, you know, it's a percent basis. So it's all relative. But the biggest thing I hear from big managers is that it, they wish they were small again because it's so much easier just to navigate. Yeah, it's, you know, I think it's hard. There have definitely been in the last... Uh, you know, we don't see a lot of things that we really want to buy in microcap land. Um, but there are companies that are, let's say, you know, it is a nice $500 million market cap, but a lot of the shares are actually owned by uh, the insiders, which is normally a great sign for us. We love that. We love when there's high insider ownership. But if that means there's even less on the float, it's just going to take us a long time to get in and out. Right. It won't discourage us from doing it. Um, but it's just a, it's just a thought. I think for us, when, when that happens, we want to know, okay, we don't want something like I would be less likely to pursue something in a consumer discretionary sector where things can turn around a little bit more quickly than say in a producer durable or technology sector, um, where, you know, there, the protections are a little bit more durable and you don't maybe need to be, uh, as quick on the draw to get out of something if it's, you know, clearly the tide has turned. No, that makes perfect sense. And then I guess a final question for you, Julie, before we go is, do you change your strategy in a bear market versus a bull market? Or is it all based on analyzing the businesses and it doesn't matter what the market's doing? No, it doesn't. It doesn't matter what the market is doing. The only thing that's, you know, with the last kind of two weeks and the major declines is we've just kind of gone back on any names that we passed on valuation and said, are we now at a point where we might be interested in, in buying? So the last two weeks have been mostly a buying opportunity for us. Um, and, you know, that's, we don't have a lot of cash. So I think that's part of the other thing is trying to figure out, uh, do we want to kind of let go of some names um, to upgrade the portfolio now that valuations are a little bit closer to reality? Understood. That makes perfect sense. Well, thank you so much, for Julie, for coming on the show. It's been an absolute delight. Uh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you.